I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So I have a very interesting episode lined up today featuring Professor Robert H. Frank of Cornell University. We go through his contributions to the field of behavioral economics. We delve into the economic consequences of keeping up with the Joneses, how peer pressure can help us solve climate change and help to fight against COVID and the strategic role of emotions. Professor Frank is not just a practitioner of the science, he has helped develop this field. So it really was a pleasure to talk to someone at the cutting edge of behavioral economics. I would recommend Professor Frank's book, Under the Influence, which covers a lot of his work on putting peer pressure to work. And there is a link in the podcast description for those who are interested. If you enjoy the podcast to the value of a price of coffee a month, Patreon is a way to contribute to keep the show on the road. I'm putting up bonus material from time to time and there are opportunities to contribute questions to future guests, discuss what we should get on next, all that sort of stuff. So if you're interested, go to patreon.com forward slash Irish Econ pod, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Irish Econ pod. Now, I didn't set this up, but we touch on weddings in the, today's episode and we have a special weddings episode on the Patreon site for those who are interested. So... So if this whets your appetite for more wedding discussion, head on over to Patreon to check that out. So we begin our chat uh, where I ask Professor Frank about his contributions to the field. He tells us some very interesting stories about how he set up one of the first behavioral economics courses, which came to be after some discussions with the recent Nobel laureate, Richard Taylor. Okay, I I, uh, started thinking about economics and behavioral terms in the late 1970s or early 1980s. Okay. Uh, I had been on leave in Washington, D.C., my first sabbatical leave. I came back to Cornell in 1980. While I'd been away, Richard Thaler arrived at Cornell. Uh, I met him shortly after I got back. We spent long hours talking about all the ways in which the economic models that that people taught in the classroom didn't seem to fit the world that we saw out there. And uh, it was probably a year or two later that I I taught what I think was the first uh, undergraduate course in behavioral economics. Richard Thaler had been teaching uh, the MBA students a course that I think really was a behavioral economics course too. 
but the undergraduate course, I think, was was the first one uh, ever ever to really think of itself as a behavioral economics course. And I didn't have a, a ready syllabus. Obviously, there wasn't any prescribed uh, body of material to teach students under that heading then. Uh, so after some deliberation, I, I decided to call the course Departures from Rational Choice. Right. I don't like that title at all now. I wouldn't call it that if I were doing this uh, for the first time again. I think that just invites uh, a lot of fruitless discussion about what it means to be rational. Uh, but that's what I called it. And I, I had two main headings. One was departures from rational choice with regret. And that was really the the body of material that Richard Thaler was focused on. He had been uh, uh, in the Northwest uh, on a sabbatical of his own with Danny Kahneman and and uh, Amos Tversky, and and their their uh, entire body of work was essentially devoted to the fact that people make mistakes. Uh, those are the kinds of departures from rational choice that I call with regret, because when you explain to people that they've made a mistake, they sim most of the time feel motivated to change their behavior. Oh, they're taking sunk costs into account. A rational person shouldn't do that. And, and you know, it takes a while for that idea to, to seem correct to some people. But once they get it, they, they want to stop paying attention to sunk costs in the future. Uh, the the other part of the course that I offered, I entitled Departures from Rational Choice Without Regret. And those are the things that don't fit what uh, the predictions of the standard rational choice model serve up. Uh, and yet when you tell people that they're not doing what the model predicts they'll do, they don't seem to have any regret about that at all. So self-interested people, when they're dining at a restaurant far from home by themselves, they won't leave a tip because they're never coming back again. And by the time they've they've gotten whatever level of service they're going to get from the server, it's too late for, for her to change uh, the, the level of service. So why leave a tip? Uh, you, you explain that to people and almost nobody says, oh, thanks for pointing that out. From now on, I won't leave a tip. They think people who would think in those terms are kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah. So so my own work has really focused uh, much more on goals that people pursue that aren't quite captured in the standard economic model. And and I think the, the main focus has been uh, on what I consider Adam, uh, Charles Darwin's central insight, which is that life is graded on the curve. Uh, it, it's not how, how strong you are. It's not how smart you are in absolute terms that matters for your situation in life. It's how those qualities compare to the corresponding ones uh, that the people competing most directly against him. So, so it turns out that uh, your ability to achieve many of the most basic goals in life depends not on how much you spend or, or what qualities you have, but on how much you spend relative to what rivals spend or, or what qualities you have. That was what I thought would be the second main branch of behavioral economics. But as, as things turned out, uh, the field developed very rapidly and it focused almost entirely 
on what I called departures from rational choice with regret, uh, cognitive errors. And so then at, at some point, I, I started to wonder, well, maybe I'm not really a behavioral economist after all. Maybe that's not part of this movement. But lately, I've come to see that uh, the reason we don't take into account the policy uh, implications of the of the the models that introduce concerns about relative position is, is that we suffer from a, a fairly important uh, cognitive illusion that prevents us from seeing why the implications of that model would be in our interest uh, to, to embrace. The relative ranking is very interesting because I suppose in a more traditional sense, economists would think, well, we get our utility from what we have in more absolute terms, but your theory would come into play. It's something that, that resonates intuitively that we get utility from how we compare to our peers or those around us. And this it's more of a relative rank as opposed to an absolute rank. Yeah, I, I, and I think it's 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 framed in a way that makes people uh, want to keep distance from that way of thinking about things when, when in fact it's just a totally natural component of human nature. Uh, I think for me, uh, the the reason that this seems so important uh, stems ultimately from the fact that I uh, right out of college spent two years in Nepal. I was a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, I taught math and science in a small uh, village high school. And while I was there, I lived in a two-room house that didn't have any electricity or running water. It was a, a house that nobody here in Ithaca, New York, uh, would feel okay about living in. Uh, if, if I lived in a house like that here, my kids wouldn't have wanted their friends to know where we live. They would have been ashamed. I, I would have been ashamed, and that's not because we have any kind of character defect. It's just that living in a house like that here is so woefully jarring in in the in the in the local context. It's just a, a like having a big sign around your neck saying, I failed to meet even the minimal expectations of, of, of life in this environment. In that environment, it was a totally satisfactory house. I, I had uh, colleagues and friends over happily. Nobody uh, thought ill of, of the house. It was, in fact, a fairly nice house. So that that's not, uh, you know, if, if you if you evaluate things uh, within a frame of reference, that's really the only way we're equipped to make evaluations of that sort. You know, is it is it cold out? You know, I grew up in Miami, Florida. If it was 60 degrees in the evening in November, it was we knew the answer. You know, it was freezing. You know, we wear every warm garment we had if we went out. If you're in Montreal on a 60 degree afternoon in March, is it cold out? They think you're stupid if you ask the question. You no, know, of course it's not cold out. So context really, really matters. That resonates with me because I spent a summer in New York and I remember as an Irish person in New York, there was the one rainy day or it wasn't rainy, it was actually just cold and people were complaining. And I had the typical Irish response of, well, at least it's dry, which to me <laughs> was a good day. But to everybody yeah. local was not a good day. But um, that no, it really does uh, make a lot of sense, I think. In terms of applying that concept, you had a few interesting I suppose, analogies. And one of them was, I think, was to do with an arms race. And there's other aspects maybe when it comes to issues like wage bargaining and 
and housing markets. Maybe you could tell us a bit about how this sort of perspective can help understand these, these concepts. Sure. I, the, the arms race uh, narrative is completely uncontroversial. I don't think people divide according to whether they're liberal or conservative or religious or non-religious. It's, yeah. it's, it's very simple. It's straightforward. The idea basically is that uh, you have rival nations. They're each worried about uh, being attacked by by uh, another country, and so they stockpile armaments to defend themselves. They they don't know how much the other side has, so they build a little extra just to be sure. But then the mm-hmm. other side builds extra to be sure itself. And uh, to maintain your sense of security, it's rational individually for a country to build more arms. Mm. Uh, and yet when each side builds more arms, uh, not only do they not become more se- secure as a result of doing that, they become less secure. Yes. Uh, it's exactly analogous to the situation where the person in front of you at a concert stands to see better and you, you, you're forced to see better or else not see at all. You, you stand. It's not irrational to stand. It's totally rational from your individual point of view to stand. You have no regrets about having stood, and yet you'd all be happier if none of you were standing. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the case of of the military arms race, countries often sign enforceable agreements uh, promising not to stockpile arms beyond a certain limit. and nobody complains in that instance that these agreements violate their rights to build as many arms as they want to build. Mm. That's the whole point of the agreement. They know that if they're free to build as many arms as they want to build, they'll build too many. Mm. So to to achieve the outcome both sides want to achieve, they agree not to do that. And they have to have a binding rule that keeps them from doing that. Yeah, sure. So whenever you have uh so why do you get an arms race it's because arms matter the stock of arms you have matters more in relative terms than the stock of other things Mm -hmm. that you might have besides arms so if they have better toasters than we have we don't like that but we can live with that if they have more bombs than we have that's dangerous for our survival so if if relative holdings matter more for one thing than another you see an escalation of expenditure on the thing where relativity matters more. And the financing for that escalating expenditure in that category comes from taking money away from the other category. So we build fewer roads, fewer hospitals, uh, worse schools to free up money to build more bombs. Nobody likes the result of that. So they try to make agreements not to do that. It's exactly analogous, uh, the, the forces that guide spending patterns, both for individuals and, and from the collective vantage point in, in ordinary domestic spending. So if I'm, if I'm a parent, probably my first priority is to get my kids into the best possible school I can. Uh, what's true in every country, every, every state, every city, all around the world is that the better schools are located where the houses are more expensive. That's true even in France, where the budget per pupil is exactly the same. Still, the the schools that parents want to see their kids go to are the ones in the more expensive areas. Uh, And your imperative then as a parent is to to scrape together as much money as you can for a, a down payment on a house in the best possible school catchment area. 
to do that, you'll borrow uh, money uh, more than you ought to. You'll reduce your savings imprudently. You'll commute longer distance distances. You'll you'll work you'll work longer hours. You work du double shifts. You'll work every margin available to you to do that. But the rub, of course, is exactly the same as in a military arms race when everybody bids more intensively for a house in a better school district. They succeed only in bidding up the prices of those houses. Still, half of all the kids end up going to bottom half schools, the same as if nobody had done that. Hmm. And, and the way most governments have tried to push back against that arms race is they 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 tax people while they're working, and then they use the proceeds from those taxes to fund retirement pay, pension payments except for the fact that they taxed that money away from you while you were working, you would have spent it on a fruitless bidding war for a house in a better school district. At least this way, you know, everyone goes to the same schools as before, but you get a pension payment, and that's better than we would have had otherwise. Sure. What really resonates with me is that it reminds me of the first thing, one of the first things you learn in economics was the whole idea of conspicuous consumption. And the example would be something like a fur coat and most people would think of a fur coat as being something that's very extravagant and a rare expenditure whereas it actually relates to more common expenditures and it has it has a knock-on effect on other expenditures and because of this constraint that you can only have so much income or whatever you know it it, it affects your your welfare in other ways which is which is very interesting i think that's one reason that people have been slow to take this whole problem seriously because it's been framed by so many people as oh they're just trying to show off they're just trying to uh, posture and, and and look like they have more money than they have. They're they're insecure, uh, shallow people. No, it's it's really far more fundamental than that. Uh, the 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 things you spend money on uh, are important for your ability to feel like you've achieved the goal you were trying to achieve. In in the U.S., think about the amount families are spending on wedding reception receptions. It's it's now three times as much in real terms as it was in 1980. Nobody getting married today is any happier because of that. Uh, you know, the, the effect of that threefold increase in real dollar expenditures has been simply to raise the bar that defines the, the kind of celebration people expect. You know, I, when I got married, I'd never even heard of a destination wedding. Now, now my kids are, are going to destination bachelor parties in distant locations you know it's 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 money spent in those ways uh we we've got a big literature on the determinants of human flourishing we know that money spent in those ways doesn't make any difference for anybody you know just it just uh raises the the sense of what people feel they need but it doesn't make them happier or healthier the mansions I'll get twice as big. The people living in them aren't any happier. They're probably less happy because it's more trouble to manage the bigger property. And th those are all dollars that could be spent on useful things. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned weddings because that's something that, that's been touched on previously, actually, in the podcast. So it's nice to get your perspective. And it's definitely something that, that's experienced this side of the Atlantic also. Uh, so before we move on from this, a lot of your work is perhaps on the concepts. Have you done any empirical analysis to try and see these outcomes in the field or... Uh, where does it fit in maybe perhaps on other 
theories that explain this behavior. The empirical work that relates most directly to the issues we've just discussed uh, is work I did with uh, a former undergraduate and a, and a colleague uh, to explore what we call the expenditure cascade. That's the, the fact that since 1970, roughly, there's been a sharp increase in inequality that's occurred in the U.S., also in many other countries. The pattern is, is one where almost all of the income growth has gone to people at the top of the income ladder. Mm. Most of it to people in the top 20% in that group. It's mostly the top 5%. If you look within that group, it's the top 1% that have gotten the lion's share of the gains. And that's true no matter how high up you, you go. It's, it's more and more concentrated. And the people at the very top spend more. Uh, why? Because that's what people do at every level. When they have more, they spend more. Uh, the people in the middle don't get angry when they see the people at the top spending more. They want to see pictures of the mansions and the, and the yachts and the parties. The people just below the top, though, they, they travel in the same circles. That shifts their frame of reference, so they build bigger. They, they spend more on their celebrations. And then there's a group just below them that overlaps. They spend more, too. And it cascades all the way down. And so that that uh, expenditure cascade, if you can't invoke uh, a, a narrative along those lines, very difficult to explain why the median new house in the U.S. is now uh, 50% larger than it was in 1980. Uh, it's uh, risen in price by even more than 50%. Uh, that's anomalous because the median earner earns essentially the same real hour hourly wage as in 1980. Why are they spending so much more? The answer is that people like them are spending more, but then why are people like them spending more? You have to go all the way up to the top to see the first move in that cascade. And so that's the that's the narrative. And to test that, what we did was we looked at changes in inequality in different uh, census districts in the U.S. So, so we looked at the county level, the 100 largest counties, uh, income inequality went up in just about all of them. But it didn't go up at the same rate in all of them. Uh, it went up much more sharply in some than in others. And uh, our theory predicts that where inequality rises more sharply, we will see greater symptoms of financial distress among the people living in those areas because they're trying to keep up with a standard that they can't afford to keep up with. And uh, it, it was a crude uh, assessment, but we, we found three measures that we thought reliably tracked, uh, 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 that, that, that were really were footprints of financial distress. One was the rate at which families filed for bankruptcy in the counties where inequality grew the most. The, the rate of bankruptcy filings grew most sharply in those counties. Uh, the, the couple's counselors will tell you that people come to see them for many reasons, but they almost never see a couple for whom financial distress isn't at least one of the worries that has brought them there. And so we see in the counties where inequality grew the most, the rate of increase of divorce uh, uh, was greatest in those counties, too. And the third measure we tracked was the the proportion of commutes to and from work longer than one hour each way. 
there are the ideas that if you're having a hard time making ends meet, uh, one margin you can work is to move farther from the center where land is cheaper and just endure the punishing commute back and forth to work. And so uh, that, that's a very common symptom of inequality here in, in Aspen, Colorado, people commute for two hours to the service, the tradespeople who, who, who work in the hotels and resorts in Aspen can't afford to live anywhere near Aspen because the prices uh, they have to commute two or three hours. So, so all of those measures uh, consistently showed greater increase when inequality grew more. Interesting. Wow, that's a nice identification strategy to get at your to get at that effect. That's really something that that uh, the economists amongst can 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 uh, can take from that. Um, I suppose that brings us on then to your more recent work on your on more sort of peer effects in your book under the influence. And I'll um, I'll put a link to that in the description for the podcast if anybody's interested. Um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about the general idea. Suppose it's 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 more formal concept of of peer pressure. Would that be correct? Yeah, I I didn't want to have the term peer pressure appear anywhere in the title or subtitle. Uh, my my editor finally uh, persuaded me to think about uh, putting peer pressure to work as the subtitle, and and that had a, a, enough of a man bites dog aspect to it uh, that I thought, yeah, let's go with that. Uh, it has a very negative valence in this culture. I'm, I'm sure that's common in many other cultures too. Uh, parents always are uh, at great pains to teach their kids not to follow the dumb examples of their friends. And so peer pressure has a, a very negative connotation. But uh, the, the psychologists have long stressed that it's a, it's a hugely important influence on on what people do they they have a saying they say uh it's the situation not the person and by that what they mean is that uh if you see somebody behave in a certain way we our natural impulse is to ask well what kind of a person would do such a thing and so we think about traits of character or personality no that's the wrong way to think about it say the psychologists uh you really want to look at the at the social circumstances surrounding the decision. That's really where all the action is going to lie in most cases. And so uh, if, you, if you're worried, for example, that your daughter will become a smoker, uh, you know, it doesn't help to know that she likes science fiction novels. It doesn't help to know that she's a football fan or, or is good in math. None of that tells you anything useful. What you want to know is what's the proportion of her friends who smoke. If, if that number rises, she is much more likely to become a, a smoker. It's a big effect. There's no other effect that compares with it. So if, it, if the percentage of her friends who smoke goes from 20 to 30%, for example, she becomes 25% more likely to become a smoker. You know, it's huge. Uh, that's long been known. I think most people uh, uh, intuitively don't realize how strong the effect is. But if you if you read the evidence on it, it's, it's incontrovertibly uh, a strong effect. What's true, too, uh, and I think we we hear much less about this, uh, is that the causal arrows also run in the opposite direction. So the social environment affects us for good and ill, for ill in the case of smoking, but often for good. Uh, what's the social environment? That's a consequence of the decisions we take. So the smoking rate uh, is just the number of us who smoke over the total number of us. Uh, so when we 
decide to smoke, we affect the smoking rate, which in turn affects uh, whether people like us will smoke. But but since our own individual effect on the the social environment is so small, we typically neglect it. Uh, we it, It's not worth worrying about. So very few people would say, oh, I better not smoke. I might make others more likely to smoke. That's a very uncommon uh, kind of thought pattern. But if there were some way, I mean, clearly the social environment matters for us. Uh, if, if people do good things around, if they diet uh, uh, prudently and exercise regularly, we're more likely to do that too. If the social environment around us uh, encourage benign behaviors, behaviors we want to see uh, uh, become more frequent in ourselves and our children, uh, that would be a good thing. If, if, if the social environment encourages harmful behaviors, we'd want to see less, less of that. Uh, and so nobody, as far as I can tell, has, has really thought systematically about whether there's any way to act on the insight that if if we could encourage people to behave as if they cared about their effect on the social environment, should we do that? And and when you start thinking about that, then there's just a an avalanche of simple, useful steps that we can take that would encourage people to make choices that would have beneficial effects on the social environment, which in turn would uh, ramify uh, back in the other direction. Uh, taxing cigarettes is the simplest example, but there's just a whole host of simple steps we could take that would that would produce huge gains without requiring painful sacrifices really from anyone. So perhaps do you have any examples? I think two things that come to mind, of course, is climate change, and that's definitely uh, something that we can influence those around us. But one that comes to mind, I don't know if you have any any insights, is some of the social distancing measures that we need to take and wearing a mask, for example. I see that as, as being one that, that perhaps we could learn from your theories. There's a collective benefit for everybody to wear a face mask. And one way that you could perhaps establish that routine is if there was some sort of um, social norm in place. Yes, it, it's it's by far the easiest, most direct pathway to to getting everyone to wear a mask. Uh, what can you do about that? You can wear a mask. Uh, when people see you wearing a mask, they're much more likely to wear one. If you're out for a walk and you pass somebody, you're wearing a mask and, and he isn't, he's a little embarrassed uh, in most cases uh, uh, to see you've gone to the trouble of doing it and, and, and he hasn't. So yeah, I think that that's uh, and and the more prominent you are uh, in in the hierarchy, the more important your example is. And so that's that's been our curse here is that the very uh, people at the top of the hierarchy, at least in nominal terms, have been disdainful of wearing masks. And so we've got uh, in many parts of the country very very low compliance with that norm. And. When it comes to the um, climate change, then, have you covered any examples in terms of uh, how under the influence and how, how this sort of social pressure can affect climate change? Probably the most vivid example uh, uh, where we have hard data uh, concerns solar panel adoption. So there was a, 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 a seminal study early in the adoption cycle in California if there was one new adoption in a neighborhood, uh, the effect of that was within four months' time to stimulate a second 
new adoption, one that wouldn't have occurred but for the fact that people saw the first one. It's, it's actually statistically quite uh, a complex set of hoops you've got to jump through to, to establish that it was caused by the first uh, adoption and not by other factors that, that would have led to an adoption. But, but uh, they can sort that out with large, large samples. And so in four months' time, you started with one, then you've got two in eight eight months' time. Each of those spawns uh, in the next four months uh, a, a new adoption. So you've got one, two, then then four of them after eight months. After two years, you've got a stock of 32 solar panel adoptions in that one neighborhood alone that wouldn't have occurred except for that first one having occurred uh, uh, at time zero. It's a huge effect, but it doesn't stop there because each of those people has family family members scattered about the country they or, or friends in, in other places they talk to. Oh, we put solar panels up. You should see uh, the, the effect it's had on our, our electric bill. People are going to be adopting them in other places, too, as a result of, of that one new adoption. So. So I think there's been a long argument in, in the climate debate, does individual action matter? And, and uh, you know, I, I long held the, the traditional economist view that, no, it doesn't. What we really need to do is adopt robust changes in public policies, a stiff carbon tax, massive investment in green energy infrastructure and the like. If we don't do that, we're, we're, we're never going to solve the problem. Uh, I still think we need those things, but uh, I, I have completely backed away from my, my sense that individual action doesn't matter just because it's so much more uh, impactful because of the indirect effects of it. But in addition to that, uh, taking the steps like that, eating less meat, uh, walking when you could have driven, uh, those steps by themselves don't matter. They have indirect effects that matter uh, quite a lot in some cases. But more important than all of that is that taking those steps changes who you are. I think uh, the standard move by economists is to say, well, you come into the world with fixed identities and preferences. Uh, no, no, said Aristotle. We, we, we construct who we are over time gradually by what we do, uh, habits and, and and, and daily actions shape us. It feels like, so these sort of effects amplify maybe the benefit of a carbon tax and that you have these sort of knock-on network type effects. Yes. Yeah, a carbon tax has uh, probably a small effect on each individual person, but the, the ultimate effect is massive. You know, so if, if we had a little tax on meat, uh, we could make it revenue neutral. That is to say, we'll collect all the revenue from the tax on meat and then give it back to the people who who paid it in a in a a check each month since rich people eat much more expensive meat and more meat than poor people the the low and middle income families would get more back in a rebate check each month than they'd paid but still the effect of that would be to make meat more expensive than non-meat uh things in your diet so people would have an incentive to shift gradually toward more plant-based sources of food in their diet. And as people did that, it would just become the custom to eat in a different way because others like you would be doing. 
I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I have been around a lot of vegetarians where I feel the pressure not, not to eat meat. Yeah. So uh, it, it works, definitely. <laughs> yeah. It, and, you know, you don't have to become a, a vegetarian. You know, we can, we can all, you know, m- most of us eat way more meat than is good for us. Uh, and, and why do we do that? Because other people eat it. Uh, uh, it's the custom to eat in that way. And if the custom changed, we wouldn't feel any sense of deprivation at all about sure. eating less of it. So the power of a lot of these effects seems to be that when you go back to your solar panel example, that I get the recommendation from somebody I trust and therefore I'm perhaps more likely to to act on that than if I heard it from, you know, an official source or just yes. a pamphlet. How do we harness that effect then if we want to, you know, make a policy based on, on this sort of theory? Well, the if, if we had a, a stiff and I'll say revenue neutral because I think that's the way to get it adopted, carbon tax, yeah. uh, call it a carbon fee dividend program, mm. if you don't like the word tax, which is probably smart marketing to call it yeah. that instead of a tax. Uh, you you would make uh, power from solar much cheaper for all families, low income, middle income, high income alike. More people would adopt solar panels and and you wouldn't need to take any other step. We know that when when there's a solar panel on the street side of the house and people can see it, it has much more impact on surrounding uh, family adoptions than if it's in the back of the house where you can't see it. So just getting a few people to shift uh, launches uh, that process and it just takes off on its own after that. Uh, if you, I mean, companies always try to use peer testimonials to to get you to try their product, of course, you can have public service messages that exploit that that strategy, too. Okay, interesting. That is, yeah, very interesting. And we can all think of examples. So that's, we can see that has been used in in advertisement, but now it makes more sense as to why it was there. And the utility companies, uh, they report that the, the very most effective conservation message they've ever tried has been to tell you how much power you use compared to your neighbors. Yeah. So if you use more power than your neighbors uh, and, and they report that to you, that's the biggest effect uh, of, of, of any message they've tried in getting people to reduce their consumption. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yes, okay, right. Well, maybe we can move on to some of your other work then and... Um, one thing that I found very interesting was when you talked about the, the strategic use of emotions and how that comes into play. And when we talk about Econ 101, we think about uh, Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand. Our own self-interest guides us towards the social optimal. But perhaps you would say that sort of self-interested behavior can lead us away from uh, a socially optimal outcome. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it's true that there are many people who are ruthless. Uh, if there's any chance to exploit consumers, uh, cheat them out of out of uh, what they, they rightfully expect from a transaction and get away with it, then we know there will people are people out there who will do that. There was a, a good book published a couple of years ago by Bob uh, Schiller and George Akerlof, uh, uh where they sort of describe the various uh, scams that the, the commercial sector uh, carries out routinely across a whole variety of sectors. Uh, and, and so we, we know that the same self-interest motive that, that drives producers to do what Adam Smith described in The Wealth of Nations, which is to introduce quality improvements and cost-saving innovations to to expand their market share, you know, that, that's been a benevolent uh, force uh, in general. That's the invisible hand. Uh, that same energy also guarantees that they're going to cheat whenever they can get away with it. And so uh, the, the issue is, is always how, how do we ever see honesty and fair dealing emerge in, in a world where there are still opportunities to cheat without probability of getting pun- punished for it. And uh, yeah, so that was a, an early strand in my own work. Uh, I, I've always been interested in evolution. And and the, the challenge is to explain why people would uh, refrain from cheating if they knew they wouldn't be punished for doing it uh, in a competitive arena where what matters for your ability to succeed is how much uh, material resources you get. So if you cheat and nobody knows you cheated and you get more 
more stuff, then it seems like there's you know not only have an incentive to cheat, you must cheat because if you don't cheat, others will cheat and they'll get more payoff than you and they'll drive you to extinction. And it turns out that if there are individuals who don't cheat under those circumstances, and, and this is the big if, if they're in some observable way different from the ones who do cheat and they can spot that element that makes them different in one another, then they can interact selectively with one another and reap the gains from successful cooperation in situations that require trust. So, so here's a thought experiment. You, you've gotten home from a crowded concert. You've, you had an envelope with a, a 10,000 pounds in it. You were going to buy a car the next day. The owner wanted cash. You get home. Uh, the envelope is, is, that had the cash in it is not in your coat pocket anymore. You remember the sound of it falling out. Oh, that must have been the envelope fell out as I was leaving uh, the event. Can you think of anybody not related to you by blood or marriage who you feel sure would return your money if she found it? Well, most people most people will say yes. They 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 can. They could name uh, many such people. They u- usually will name somebody they know well. Mm-hmm. How, how do they know uh, that she'd return the money? It can't be that she found 10,000 pounds before and returned at that time. Uh, they seem to believe that they know this person well enough to to say, well, if she found my money, she wouldn't even think about keeping it. Uh, she'd feel so bad about the idea. Uh, so so we we feel it's possible to know people well enough to predict that they wouldn't do that in some sort of some situations where they could do it and get away with it. So if if we have that capacity to make statistically reliable judgments of trustworthiness, then that's all it takes for spontaneous trust to emerge. Uh, right. Okay. Now it takes it takes more than that. Uh, you and you don't get a, a uniformly honest population on the strength of that alone. I mean, people, there's still going to be cheaters out there. You you have to be vigilant, but. But you can get honest behavior even without rules uh, under the, those circumstances. And we've done experiments to show that when uh, you you have people play games with strangers where uh, it's possible to cheat your partner with no chance of detection, people predict much better than chance accuracy who'll cheat and who won't. The, the Theory of Moral Sentiment, Smith's book from uh, 1859 uh, said you couldn't have markets without the moral uh, values that, that that enable people to trust one another. Uh, people have lost sight of that book uh, for the most part in the years since, but it's still a very important book. It seems to tie in with, similar to what we said before, maybe that uh, if you're going to interact with somebody, it's almost like a repeated game that if there's a, if, if you're going to be repeated interactions with somebody, well, then it's in your own, own interest to have to, to be trustworthy. But then is that really trustworthiness if it's if your material incentives favor uh-huh. being honest when you know you're going to keep interacting with the person, then uh, maybe you're just being prudent rather than trustworthy. Yeah, true. Yeah. Okay. But 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 to even there, it's it's hard to be prudent in those situations because uh, you have to ref, retrain, refrain from cheating now on the first move. So you pay a cost now by doing that uh, in the hope of getting a larger payoff in the future. 
but people aren't very good at that. You know, they, they have a hard time passing up immediate gains uh, in order to reap larger future gains. Uh, Self-control is a ubiquitous human shortcoming. And so if you care about uh, treating your partner fairly, it's easier to pass up the current gain and, and initiate a string of successful ongoing trusting interactions. So, so, so it helps. It helps there too if you care about doing the right thing. Right. So there's a value in actually caring and, and being a good person, essentially. Yeah, that brings the payoff from doing the right thing up front. You know. Yeah, in, sure. In, in the other way of thinking about it, you have to wait till the future interaction to get paid, but but you avoid the sting of guilt, shame, by doing the right thing now. So okay, so the other work that you're um, quite uh, well known for is this the economic naturalist type work and um, really interesting insights into maybe everyday phenomena. And just before we go into it, maybe you could tell us where this idea came from. Uh, the, the origin of it came in the 1980s. I was uh, teaching uh, an upper level undergraduate course and uh, Cornell has something called the Knight Writing Program, K-N-I-G-H-T. It's financed by the Knight Foundation. Their aim was to get professors to assign more papers uh, in their courses. Uh, there's a very persuasive body of research showing that writing about a subject is a really good way to learn about it. Uh, uh, you can read about it, you can you can talk to other people about it, but if you actually write something about uh, an idea, that gets it into your head in a, a, a way that some of the other approaches don't. So the, the problem they knew was that professors are reluctant to assign papers because that means they'll have to grade them. Uh, and so uh, what the program did was they trained teaching assistants, graduate teaching assistants, to give feedback to students on their papers. And so we could assign papers, the TAs would grade them and give fee detailed feedback on them. Uh, and, and so I had a TA provided to me for free for a couple of years and I got to doing that. Uh, the, the support for the program went away, uh, but I could, could see how effective it was. And so I felt like I was uh, under some obligation to keep doing it. But uh, where I used to have 20 page papers, I wasn't willing to do that if I had to read them. So it went down to 10 pages and then five pages. Finally, 500 words is where I settled uh, because that's all it took to to respond adequately to the, the ultimate uh, form of the assignment that I gave, which was to pose an interesting question based on something that you've either witnessed yourself or experienced personally, and then use basic economic principles to craft a plausible answer to your question. Uh, it's, it's not so easy to pose an interesting question. So the, the, the students have to do that twice in the term. Uh, the first effort is often unsuccessful. It's, it's, they'll say, how come we order out for pizza the night after we've been up all night studying for an exam? Oh, it's because we're dead tired the next day and it's too hard to cook when you're tired. Uh, if that's the paper, I tell them, well, yes, that's that's a correct application of the cost-benefit yeah. principle. Uh, yes, it's correct, but it's not interesting. Uh, it's so obvious. I don't want to go knock on a colleague's door and say, 
Listen to this question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So how do you know if your question is interesting? Ask your friends the question. If their eyes light up, yeah, why is that? Then it's interesting. If they, if they just blink dully, then then no, probably it's not very interesting. But okay. But they, on the second round, almost always come up with a question that's more interesting than the first round, and the best ones are really interesting. So Professor Frank's connection dropped out briefly there as he was explaining the setup to his favorite economic naturalist question. Why do brides spend a lot of money on a wedding dress that can only be worn once, whereas grooms often rent a suit or tuxedo, even though that can be used many times afterwards? It seems exactly backwards. The brides ought to rent a dress and, and the grooms ought to buy a tuxedo that they can wear over and over again. Sure. Uh, her, her answer, uh, this was Jennifer Dulski, uh, who was the author of this paper. She, she, she started with a strong assumption, but it's not one that I've ever heard anybody question. She said on important social occasions, it's more important for women to make a fashion statement than for men. Uh, and and uh, most people seem to say, yeah, that's that's the way it is here too. Yeah, uh, if you absolutely. accept that assumption, uh, then uh, she said it, it immediately follows that if you tried to make a fashion statement with a rental gown, uh, they would have to stock scores of gowns in each size, uh, or else you'd end up at your wedding wearing a gown that somebody had worn to a, a wedding that friends had gone to last month. Uh, if if they did that, then the gowns would rent out every seven or eight months or once a year. They would have to the the, the carrying costs of of having such a large idle inventory would be so great. They would have to rent the gowns out for more even than the purchase price of the gowns. And so, why would anybody rent yeah. one when you could buy it for less? And and with tux with the tuxedo. Guys just don't seem to care that they're wearing a suit like the other guys wore at the last wedding people went to. So what? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, and if you don't care, then you can serve the market with two or three suits in each size. They're going to rent out uh, 12 or 14 times a year. You can rent them out for uh, $100 a suit. And, and if you're trying to save some money when, when cash is tight, uh, that that's a step you can take that's, that's very attractive to lots of people. That's really interesting. And you can probably apply some of your other theories there in terms of fear pressure and, and the relative value. Because oh, there, there's, a, there's a whole host <laughs> of interesting questions people can ask and answer. And, yeah. and, and the, 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 the real value of the exercise is that you know, I, I circulate the best papers and then students just talk about them with one another. They go home for holidays. They're, that's the topic of conversation around the dinner. Each time you describe one of these examples to people, you get a little bit better uh, at your grasp of whatever principle it is that's driving the example. And, and in, in economics, at least, there's really only a handful of basic principles that do most of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And, and if, you, if you really use them uh, repeatedly in contexts that you're familiar with, you'll, you'll, you'll know them at a deep level after just a single semester. Yeah, I always think that... One thing you know when you've when you've got to the end of your economics training is that your mind works like a supply and demand diagram. If you had like a cartoon in one of these cartoon bubbles, yeah. it would be a supply and demand diagram, and that would be one way of, of developing that skill. I think. Um, uh, okay, well, maybe just before we we wrap up, one thing that would be really interesting is that you have done work on asking the question whether studying economics inhibits cooperation. Maybe you could tell us a bit about 
where that idea came from and what your findings were? The economic model that's most often taught is the is the self-interest uh, uh, standard of rational choice that presumes that people are narrowly self-interested. Uh, it's not that, that economists assist, insist that there are no other motives, but they, they think that's by far the most important one. And and you, if you use what uh, some economists think of as the alternative to the the self-interest standard of rational choice, which, which I call the warm glow model. So, why do you why do you give money to the the the, the charities that solicit you? It's it's because you get a warm glow from doing that. Uh, that seems to be descriptive. Uh, if you give money to the, the public radio station that, that asks for a contribution, you get a warm glow from doing that. So maybe, maybe that's, so we set out to test Tom Gilovich and Dennis Regan. I set out to test whether studying economics and teaching students that model over and over again affected the frequency with which you behaved in a narrowly self-interested way. And, and to do that, we, we had people play prisoners' dilemma games in the lab with one another in groups of three. They would talk for 30 minutes with two strangers and then pair off uh, and, and uh, fill out forms, each person separately, and, and play prisoners' dilemma games with each of the other two. You could cooperate or defect. As in all prisoners' dilemmas, if you defect, you get a higher payoff no matter what the other person does. But if both of you defect, you both do worse than if each of you cooperates. And and what we were interested in uh, was not just whether what people would do, but that, that had been well studied. And in fact, most people didn't defect, which is contrary to the prediction of the standard model. But we were interested in whether people could predict who would defect and who would cooperate. And the cooperation rate was about 25%. Excuse me, the defection rate was about 25%, which is already a, a strong refutation of the self-interest model. But when people predicted their partner would defect, uh, if, if those predictions weren't informative, they'd be right by chance 25% of the time, since that was the base rate of defection. In fact, uh, when you predicted your partner would defect, you were right 60% of the time, way more than chance. So even in very brief interactions, people were able to predict who would cheat, even though there was no way anybody would know after the fact who had cheated and who hadn't since your payoff that you got at the end of the experiment was the sum of the two game payoffs plus a random term that just sort of jumbled the, the picture enough so you couldn't tell who had done what. Uh, and what we found was that if you were an economics major, you were twice as likely to defect in those games as if you were a non-major. And that raises the question of whether that's just a selection effect. Is it the people who are more selfish to begin with are more drawn to study economics? Uh, or is it a training effect? And we found some evidence of a training effect because the the difference between economics majors and non-majors uh, in terms of their cooperation rates was was larger the longer they had studied economics. And we and we looked at the cooperation rate at the beginning of the semester and then again at the end of the semester in 
an introductory economics course and found that the cooperation rate was much lower at the end of the semester in the economics course. Uh, it was higher at the end of the semester in an introductory astronomy course, which was our control group in that experiment. I was just going to say, is this is this a, a training? Is it a, a being in university effect or is it a, being in economics effect, but you've, you've controlled for that, definitely? Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, students who were not majors in economics in economics got more cooperative as they moved through their their experience okay, at well the that, university. That, yeah, that, that removes all doubt. Okay, well, that is a very interesting <laughs> note to, to end on. Well, thank you very much, Professor Frank. I really, I, these, are, yeah. these are topics that I can talk forever, but I, I really enjoyed it and, and it was very interesting. Yeah, it was a pleasure to, to chat with you and, and uh, I, I look forward to hear, hearing the result of, of whatever you do to it when you post it. Absolutely. Okay, so thanks everybody for listening. If you like the podcast, perhaps think about giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode and want to hear more about weddings, football, and just want to help keep the show on the road, check out the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash irishiconpod. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.